This is the Pick Your Poison podcast. I'm your host, Dr. JP, and I'm here to share my passion for poisons in this interactive show. This is the first historical episode in the podcast, looking back at riveting and often harrowing stories of poisoning from the past. Today, we'll discuss the Moscow theater crisis and what happened when Chechen rebels held Russian theater goers hostage. Did the Russian government's unusual response to the crisis help or hurt the hostages? We'll also touch on what these events from 20 years ago have to do with today's very current drug epidemic. Want to know what links these two seemingly disparate things? Stay tuned to find out. If you've listened to other episodes, you know I use fictional patients based on real cases to illustrate the symptoms of different poisonings and toxins. However, in this historical episode, we'll discuss real events that actually occurred. The incident started on October 23, 2002, in Moscow, at a theater named the House of Culture of State Ball-Bearing Plant No. 1. During the second act of a play, 40 to 50 gunmen entered the theater. Several patrons initially mistook the gunfire for part of the performance. The gunmen were masked and clad in all black. Many had bombs and explosives strapped to their bodies. The Chechens took the 850 to 900 people inside the theater hostage. So a little background here for context before we go any further. The Russian-Chechen conflict began after the fall of the Soviet Union in 1991, when Chechnya declared itself independent. The hostilities included two wars, the siege of Grozny, which is Chechnya's capital city, and ended without independence for Chechnya. In 2009, Russia declared the war over, though intermittent clashes and terrorist attacks continued. From the theater, the Chechen rebels demanded immediate withdrawal of Russian forces from Chechnya, giving a deadline of one week. If Russia didn't comply within that timeline, the terrorists would begin killing hostages. Most of the hostages were Russian, though some were foreign nationals. There were also children present inside the theater. Russian forces quickly surrounded the theater, lighting the area with spotlights trained on the building. The rebels responded by promising to kill 10 hostages for every Chechen harmed. During the first two days of the siege, a small number of hostages were released, including some children, pregnant women, and Muslims. There are conflicting reports about the treatment of the hostages inside, some sources saying that they were denied water, and others saying that they were given only water and chocolate to eat. The orchestra pit was used as a laboratory. Several hostages were killed when a man tried to escape. The Chechens identified themselves as a suicide squad, saying they were all willing to die for their cause as they had all lost family members in the war, and therefore they had nothing to lose. The toxicology part of the story, and what's made this particular incident so famous, began on day four. In the early morning, at 5 a.m., on October 26th, at this point, the standoff had been going on for 57 hours. Outside the theater, the spotlights suddenly went dark. The Chechens had said that if the lights went out, they would assume the Russian security forces were attacking and react accordingly. Instantaneously, smoke began to billow through the building, coming from the ventilation system, from holes in the walls, and from underneath the stage. Hostages assumed there was a fire. It quickly became clear that there was no fire and this wasn't smoke. 
Inside the theater, people fell unconscious, both hostages and terrorists. 30 minutes later, Russian Spetsnaz special forces stormed the building. Not everyone inside was unconscious. Some of the Chechens reportedly had gas masks. After an hour of gunfighting, the Russians burst into the main hall where the hostages were held. Exactly what happened during this time and the time immediately following the assault is a matter of debate, for reasons which I'll discuss in a bit. Photos from news media clearly show bodies laid in rows on the sidewalk outside. A journalist on scene reported the faces of the hostages were, quote, waxy, white, and drawn. Their eyes were open and blank, end quote. Some of these people were dead, some unconscious. The bodies were subsequently piled haphazardly into buses. The smoke released into the theater was definitely poison gas. Other than this fact, specific details are not clear, even today. Initially, the Russians reported using a, quote, anesthetic gas released into the air conditioning ventilation system. This sparked debate and speculation around the world about what exactly was in the gas. At the same time, there was much misinformation and again speculation about what happened to the hostages. The Russians' first report said all the rebels had been killed and all the hostages had survived. Sadly, this was not the case. Physicians were among the few able or allowed to speak to journalists. Doctors at local hospitals stated that they were prepared to receive patients with wounds from bullets or explosions. They had not been warned to expect unconscious patients with exposure to unknown toxins. To this day, the exact number killed by the gas is not known. At least 130 hostages were killed, including, tragically, 25 children. In addition, 40 to 50 Chechens died, some from the gas, others were shot. In total, it's believed that at least 200 lives were lost inside the theater. Speculation about the ingredients in the poison gas continued to swirl worldwide. Four days after the release on October 30th, the Russian health minister identified it in a news conference, bringing us to question number one in today's interactive podcast. What specific agent did the Russians report was used to incapacitate those inside the theater? A. Halothane, an anesthetic gas. B. Diazepam, which is Valium. C. Fentanyl. Or D. BZ gas. The answer? C. Fentanyl. The Russian government doesn't have a reputation for, shall we say, honesty and transparency. For example, they initially reported all the hostages survived. This despite photos of bodies lying on the sidewalk and stacked in buses. So, can we believe what they said about the gas composition? Was it really fentanyl? As I mentioned, the entire world was speculating. Guesses included all of the other answers. Halothane is a classic anesthetic gas. It's fallen out of favor due to its side effects, but it was used in the operating room for decades. Benzodiazepines are sedatives like Valium, Xanax, or Ativan. There's no evidence that these were used in the theater. BZ is a gas once stockpiled by the U.S. military for use as an incapacitating agent. It's an anticholinergic, meaning it causes delirium and hallucinations. There was no evidence for this either. So let's come back to this question in a minute and ask first if fentanyl fits with the victim's symptoms. Fentanyl is a powerful opioid, like morphine or heroin, but much more potent. Opioid overdoses cause a classic triad of symptoms. One, 
a depressed mental status ranging from sleepy to unconscious, two, depressed breathing from slow to not breathing at all, and third, meiosis meaning small pupils. Symptoms witnessed by bystanders and reported by survivors are consistent with exposure to an opioid gas. First, it was fast acting, as fentanyl is. Once the gas was released, the victims fell unconscious very quickly. It also fits with the little we do know about the deaths. Reports say hostages suffocated when their heads fell forward, closing off their airways, or from lying prone on their backs and gruesomely choking on their tongues. If you know anything about opioids in general, and fentanyl in particular, you know there's an antidote. So question number two, what is the antidote for fentanyl and other opioid overdoses? A. Naloxone, brand name Narcan. B. Flumazenil, brand name Romazicon. C. Charcoal. D. Physostigmine, brand name Antilirium. The answer, A. Naloxone or Narcan. Naloxone is the antidote for opioid overdoses. Years ago, during my residency, it was used only by healthcare providers, doctors, nurses, medics, etc. Because of the opioid crisis in the U.S., you might be familiar with it. You might even have had to administer it to someone yourself. Naloxone is safe and effective, so much so that the FDA just approved it for over-the-counter use. So question number three, how can naloxone be given? A. Intranasally. B. Intravenously. C. Intramuscularly. Or D. Subcutaneously. Or E. All of the above. Answer, E, all of the above. Naloxone can be squirted intranasally into the nose, and this is the form, in fact, that's been approved for over-the-counter use. It can be injected intramuscularly, like into the arm or the thigh, subcutaneously under the skin, or given intravenously. Often, one or two doses are all you need to reverse an overdose. So, getting back to the Moscow theater crisis, was this fentanyl? If it was, then why did hundreds of people die from a toxin with an antidote, a well-known, safe antidote? Good question. One asked by toxicologists and many others in the aftermath of the crisis. Once again, the details are obscured. The FSB, or the Federal Securities Service of Russia, successor to the KGB, prevented survivors from speaking out or speaking to journalists. The Russians said they're top-secret nature of their assault was necessary for security reasons. And the Russian Secretary of Health added that specialists were informed and warned about a gas attack, and that more than a thousand doses of antidotes were prepared. In interviews with Russian physicians, they insisted they received little or no notice of a gas attack, and said supplies of naloxone were either absent or in short supply. Additionally, doctors were told to write in charts that patients were the victims of terrorism and violence rather than victims of poisoning or gas exposure. Doctors working on that day said busloads of dead and unconscious patients arrived at the hospital. One 13-year-old girl, still alive after leaving the theater, died on the way to the hospital, buried underneath dead bodies. Doctors were even prevented from releasing healthy patients from the hospital for several days, presumably to control information related to the attack. The Russians tried to blame all the fatalities on the Chechens. So getting back to the ingredients in the gas. Remember the Russians initially said it was an anesthetic gas, then said it was fentanyl. Do we believe them? Well, we have a little bit of data. 
One study examined German survivors finding halothane in their blood and urine. So if you answered A on question one, you might be correct. Halothane has a distinctive smell not reported by the hostages. It also takes longer to work than what was used. And once halothane gas is turned off, patients wake up and return to consciousness almost immediately, which is one of the reasons it's used in the operating room. Footage clearly shows victims remained unconscious despite fresh air outside the theater, meaning they didn't wake up after removal from the exposure. The conclusion here is that halothane may have been part of the mixture, but it wasn't the primary component. The German study didn't find fentanyl or fentanyl derivatives, but they noted that these drugs would have been metabolized, broken down, by the time the blood and urine specimens were obtained. The British also studied this. They took a different route, analyzing clothing samples. They found the presence of remifentanyl and carfentanyl on clothing from two survivors, and a metabolite of carfentanyl was found in a third survivor's urine. Remifentanyl is used for surgery in some countries, and carfentanyl is used by veterinarians as a sedative for large animals like elephants, rhinoceroses, and hippos. It's not still commercially available in the U.S., but in the past, it was sold under the brand name Wildnil. Carfentanil is 10,000 times more potent than morphine and 100 times more potent than fentanyl. To this day, we don't know the exact composition of the gas. The generally accepted conclusion is that it was a combination of substances, including halothane and several fentanyl derivatives, possibly remifentanil and carfentanil. This brings us to the end of our discussion, but leaves us with one big unanswered question. Did the Russians' use of the gas ultimately help or hurt the hostages? Only you can answer this question. Nobody knows the right answer. The Russians justified their use of the poison by saying more hostages would have died if they hadn't used it. They believed the Chechens would have killed all 800 or 900 hostages. The Chechens did kill several hostages. They certainly had explosives strapped to their bodies. Chechen terrorists used lethal force in attacks on Russia both before and after the theater crisis. And in 2004, Chechen rebels attacked a school. 333 hostages died, including, tragically, 186 children. World reaction was mixed. The U.S. and U.K. governments agreed with the Russian assessment that more would have died had the poison gas not been released. However, the Russians were strongly criticized for not having naloxone on scene and for not advising physicians as to the nature of the poison gas. Others, including the European Court of Human Rights, found the hostages' rights had been violated and hold Russia accountable for their deaths. Many believe the crisis and response solidified Putin's authoritarian position. There are strong opinions and valid arguments on both sides. It's a difficult and thought-provoking question. Approximately 16% of the hostages died and 84% survived. Could it have been less than 1% that lost their lives or 100% fatalities? Ultimately, we'll never know if more lives were saved or ended by the use of the opioid gas in the Moscow theater terrorist attack. I started this episode to talk about these unusual events that occurred over 20 years ago. Fentanyl is in fact an extremely timely topic, more relevant now than ever. Listen to episode 6, really part 2 of this episode, for more. We'll discuss which opioid is killing Americans at a horrifying rate, 
We'll also cover drug adulteration, including Trank or Trank Dope, which is currently receiving a lot of news coverage. Finally, thanks for your attention. I hope you enjoyed listening as much as I enjoyed making the podcast. It helps if you subscribe, leave reviews, and or tell your friends. Please leave your comments. I love to hear from listeners. All the episodes are available on our website, pickpoison.com, Apple, Spotify, or any other location where podcasts are available. Our Facebook and Instagram pages are both at pickpoison1. Additional sources like references and photos are available on the website along with transcripts. While I'm a real doctor, this podcast is fictional, meant for entertainment and educational purposes, not medical advice. If you have a medical problem, please see your primary care practitioner. Thank you, and until next time, take care and stay safe. Thank you.